You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 52. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Stephanie Pearson. She's an OBGYN and learned the hard way what it's like to not have enough disability insurance. She's here to talk to us about her story. And if you're not feeling safe at work, whether it's overwhelm or frustration, or you feel like you have a toxic environment and you feel like you can't do this anymore, please join me on Monday, November 14th at 6 p.m. Central to talk about feeling safe at work. Go to bosssurgery.com to register. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back to the show. So I have today a very special guest, Dr. Stephanie Pearson. We almost actually didn't even record this episode because we've been talking for so long. (laughs) I absolutely adore her. I'm so excited that she's on today. I've known her online for many years and I cannot wait for her to share her story. It's so compelling. I think we'll all you know, can imagine us in that situation. And, you know, oftentimes we have things in our life that could be troublesome and some people recover and some people become superstars. And Dr. Pearson is one of those people who became a superstar from something that was a, you know, obviously a big event. And so Dr. Pearson, welcome to the show. Tell us more about your story. Hey, uh, first of all, we also know each other in real life. We have gotten to hang out together before So we're not just uh, online friends, Um, but hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy and honored to be here. I'm not used to hearing myself be called a superstar. So thanks. You just actually made me blush and that doesn't happen very often. (laughs) Totally true. So thanks. I mean, I guess uh, briefly, because, you know, the story can go all day, but long story short is I am an OBGYN by training. Um, And unfortunately, during a very difficult delivery, I had a patient kick me in the shoulder, not once, but twice. uh, And I had to finish the delivery. And so baby came out. I knew something was wrong. Turns out she tore my labrum. Um, I was initially told that professional baseball pitchers pitch with torn labrums. So, of course, I should be able to do my job even though I was complaining of pain and decreased range of motion. And I did what most women physicians do. I put my head down and I worked and I figured out how to compensate. And, you know, I, I'm right-handed, but I'm a left-handed laparoscopist, right? Because you teach residents. I loved teaching. You let them operate with their dominant hand. So you get really good at operating with your non-dominant hand, So, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, it's your non-dominant arm. You're fine. And I'm like, but I'm not. Um, Fast forward, I had surgery. It didn't go as well as tolerated. I was not cleared to do OB or operate. And the day my FMLA was up, I was unceremoniously terminated. And I found out a lot the hard way about insurance, group disability, private disability, um, turned into learning a lot about life insurance. And I just became really passionate about the topic. And after kind of a string of other things that I tried to do, but didn't really feel right, 
this kind of fell in my lap. Um, I was already lecturing to area residents because I really didn't want what happened to me to happen to anybody else. And so I started lecturing to programs that I knew friends at, or I had, you know, people that I knew that knew my story and wanted this to get out. And then I would send them to other people. And one day my husband was like, Hey, maybe you should get licensed and, and do this instead of making money for other people. And I thought it was the dumbest thing I ever heard. I was like, (laughs) I'm a physician. I'm not a salesperson. This is silly. And he was like, but you're not being salesy. You go in and you educate as Dr. Pearson. You're really not sleazy, right? I mean, it really became like that kind of funny, not funny, tongue in cheek, like you're kind of the anti-salesman salesman. And so I, in typical type A fashion, locked myself in a room with textbooks and colored magic markers and pens because I'm old school and that's what I do and took the test and then cried in my car because even though I passed, I didn't get an A. (laughs) And um, my husband laughed at me. He was like, Stephanie, has anyone ever asked you what you got on your boards as a physician? And I'm like, no. And he was like, do you think anyone's really going to ask you how high you scored on the test? And I was like, no. And so, yeah, so that's kind of the like, I guess, three minute story of how I became an insurance broker. Uh, I started at my kitchen table, um, ended up needing our first two hires, worked with me out of my house. And about a year, year and a half into me doing it by myself, um, my current partner and I decided to partner. Um, He had actually been the one to help me when my insurance broker was not very helpful. And we had a very small world um, interaction. He has been tailgating with my brothers for years at Eagles games. I grew up with his cousins. So I felt comfortable, you know, like, oh, this isn't somebody who's going to take advantage of me. Um, And we could actually build a good business. And so we just had our five-year anniversary in June and we now have 26 full-time employees. That is stunning. Um I want to start off like we come from the beginning and, you know, I think that you're not unlike most of us physicians who then become entrepreneurs is this idea of, Ooh, I don't want to be salesy. You know, I don't want to put myself out there because I think that we have this altered um, relationship with money in medicine. A lot of times we don't see it, you know, Mm -hmm. things happen behind the, you know, closed doors. No one really knows how much anything costs anyway in medicine. Um, And so there's always this like very confused um, relationship that we have with money. So then when we transition into business, which is simply an exchange of value for money, we make it mean a lot about us. It's like that we shouldn't be doing it. It's salesy, you know, all these things that hold us back. What was the key for you that led you to, um, you know, break out of that idea, this, this mindset that we are trained unconsciously as physicians? Interestingly, I have to admit, I'm still a little bit like that. I actually don't know what our commission rates are 
Um, that's one of the things that my partner and our CFO handle. So you probably just pointed out one of my weaknesses. Um, as a true insurance brokerage house, clients don't actually pay us. They pay the insurance companies. The insurance companies pay Pearson Rabbits. And we made a decision in the beginning that everyone was going to be salaried so that there was no incentive, right, to sell one company over another because of commission rates. Mm -hmm. And so we've taken some of that old school insurance sleaze out of the equation. And I've purposely kept my head in the sand so that I don't have to feel that way. But ultimately, in order to keep our doors open, right, we have to pay our bills. And so there definitely was a time where I had to accept like, okay, this is what we're doing. Ultimately, even though when I go in, I'm educating as Dr. Pearson, at the end of the day, I do want people to buy from Pearson Rabbits. And so even though I'm not naming companies by name, I'm not saying come buy from me. My last slide is let's connect, right? Because at the end of the day, I do want people buying from Pearson Rabbits. I know that we give the best service. I know that we give the best education. And I think that's how I got comfortable with the idea that we need to sell in order to keep our doors open. And as long as I stay focused on the why, right? So why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I want to educate people. I want to empower people to make intelligent decisions. You know, there's really no informed consent outside of medicine. And I wanted to make this as close to that as I could. I want to make something that has historically been super confusing and make it user-friendly. And as long as I stayed true to those values, it costs money. And I'm okay with that because I know that we're giving a good service. And I think that's ultimately where that came from. And absolutely. And I know that you give good service for all the things that you mentioned. You know, this is service oriented and you did um, you know, remove some of the the ideas, this incentive that caused people to potentially uh, maybe sell more than actually providing value. Now, tell us a little bit of some of the, the problems that you experienced with your disability insurance that mm. led you to realize that, that, you know, we make some mistakes when we choose these. Oh, geez. Okay. So my first mistake, which I hear all the time, is that my group benefit has me covered. So I found out very quickly that the group benefit that we had through our hospital, which I had for a decade, in fine print, didn't cover work-related injuries. I got flatly denied and told that I would have been better off had I fallen off my bike, um, which was a really difficult pill to swallow. Wow. Um, I then found out that my private policy that I thought was appropriate wasn't. Um, I had two policies. One had 
know what I call bells and whistles. So it was a straight monthly benefit. The biggest issue was there was no cost of living adjustment. So I've literally gotten the same amount of money for the last nine years on that policy. But it is true specialty specific. The other policy that I had, while it had the cost of living adjustment, it actually wasn't a truly specialty specific policy. It had what's called a transitional occupation definition. That definition adds a phrase to the definition. So what you want your policy to say is that you're considered totally disabled in the event that you cannot do your job, which is what you do, how you do it, when you do it, regardless if you're gainfully employed in another occupation. What the transoc adds is until you make your pre-disability earnings. Now, if I can make what I made my last year of practice, do I need my benefit? No. But I know that people are getting these policies in training. And if I had been hurt in residency, which I've had clients go out in residency, that company would only be responsible for paying me until I found a job that I could make fifty or $60,000, right? It doesn't take into account your future earnings. And I wasn't at the top of my game yet. I was far, not far from it, but I was a couple of years away from the max of what I could make. And some of it is mental, right? I thought I had a true specialty specific policy that would pay me until I was 65 if I was not an OBGYN. And now every month I have to submit paperwork. I have to show our company's PLs. I have to show my, you know, W2s. I have to show my pay stubs. One, it's really annoying and time consuming and reminds me every month that I'm not doing what I set out to do for my life. And I know that at some point I might lose that benefit. And just mentally, that's really frustrating because I didn't, I'm not, I wasn't properly educated, right? If I had made that decision as an educated decision, okay, fine. But I didn't, right? I trusted somebody that I probably shouldn't have trusted. Again, I don't know if this is a woman thing or an everybody thing, but you know, I wanted my patients to trust me to do my job. I want other people that are doing their jobs to do their jobs. And, you know, there's a reason that people don't like insurance people. <laughs> right. So that was a really long answer to a short question, but no, I mean, all really critical. Goals. Yeah. All really critical things. Cause I know you mentioned a lot of things that I've heard of too, this, you know, cost of living adjustment, the specialty specific, and can you speak to the, um, the specialty specific, uh, nature of insurance that we should be looking for? Sure. And the reason I call it specialty specific is because there's no standardization of language and in insurance. So most people are used to the term own occupation, but not every company uses that phrase. And so you want as a physician to be covered for what it is you do how you do it, right? And the reason I say that is a lot of group benefits that you get from your employer may say that they're own occupation, but when you read the definition, it's what's called held to the national economy or the local labor market. It is not specific to what one employee does at one employer site. That allows them to cast a really wide net 
this is what you would, could, should be able to do based on your training, education, and skill set. You don't want to be held against 100 of your peers. You want to be covered for what it is you do every day to make an income. And if you can't do that, you also want to be able to do something else. A lot of group benefits and inferior policy is the definition for total disability is what we call modified in that it'll say you're totally disabled if you can't do your job, but it'll say, and not gainfully employed. So if you decide to do something else, they don't have to pay you as much. Whereas a true specialty specific policy it's going to say you're considered totally disabled if you can't do your job regardless if you're gainfully employed in another occupation. And there are a lot of people that say, look, if something happened to me, I'm not doing anything. Look, I used to say the old adage, I would give up my left arm to be home with my boys more. Turns out I gave up my left arm to be home with my boys more. And after six weeks, I was ready to kill everybody. You know, I I didn't want to have to worry about losing a benefit while I was trying to figure out how to be a member of society. And um, several episodes ago, I think it was episode um, 20, where we talked to Dr. Maura Lip. Um, she was a critical care uh, doctor. She actually had a disability pos- policy, those group, and a supplemental. And uh, she actually ran into a couple of the problems you can imagine. One is is how they were determining her income. So when you're RVU-based, she discovered that they were basing it on that, not the bonus structure. And so she was already getting one pay cut. That was one problem. Yeah. So a lot of group benefits only cover your base. A private policy covers everything. And that was actually, thanks for bringing that up, because that was a mistake I made as well. I thought that, I mean, turns out I didn't get my group benefit anyway, but I thought that my income was covered and my bonus was a third of my income. And I was grossly underinsured with my private policies because I was always taught answer the question asked. And my initial broker said, what's your salary? He never asked, what's your income? So I told him what my salary was and didn't know enough, right, to give him that additional information. So when I ended up hurt, I was also really underinsured. And so that's another piece that I point out with people is there are so many people, especially in academic centers, there may be multiple buckets of how you're getting paid. You could have base, RVU, teaching stipend, bonus. I mean, I've seen as many as six different places as how people are getting paid. And depending on the language in the group policy, you're so underinsured. Right. And she experienced that as well. Um, And coming to find out that she was able to work a little bit, wanted to go back because, you know, after spending so much time and our identity is wrapped up being a physician, she thought she would go back after already taking a pay cut, finding out that actually even a little bit of work was going to compromise the ability to get her benefits. And you know, that um, is another limitation that she noted that I wasn't aware of. Yep. And that goes back to how I said that the way that they define stuff is super important and you don't know what you don't know. I mean, some of these group policies 
are more than 75 pages long, who's reading them? Not no one, right? I mean, I have looked at thousands now, but for the most part, it is what it is. It's one line on your open enrollment packet. You check a box. Most of the time, you don't even have a choice. It just is what it is. And so we don't think about looking at it until we need it. And unfortunately, that's usually too late. Right. And going back to this idea of, you know, after we train for so long and our identity is now wrapped up in this idea of, you know, now I'm an OBGYN, how did you manage that transition of a change in your identity? Not well. Uh, I was admittedly suicidal in the beginning. Um, I'm okay talking about it now, but I had a plan. I wrote letters to my husband and my two children. I truly thought that I was better off to them dead. I was as underinsured as I was in the DI side. I was overinsured on the life side. And I truly at the time believed that they would be better off without me. And thankfully, I have a brilliant husband um, and he brought home a puppy. And I thought it was the worst thing in the world. I admittedly told him I hated him. Um, And he said, look, clearly the boys and I are not enough to get you out of bed. Here is something that you have to take care of, or you will be surrounded by filth. The choice is yours. And I started taking Kim for a walk every day and took her to the dog park and met people who didn't know me as Dr. Pearson. And it took a lot of therapy and pharmacology. And I, to this day, credit my husband and the dog for saving my life. It was a really rough three years. It was probably, yeah, it was about three years before I kind of came out of my hole and started to reassess who I was, what I was, what I was capable of doing and realizing that my brain was still completely intact and there had to be other things that I could do. Um, And I'm, you know, it's been nine years since I practiced medicine and it's still a big part of who I am. I mean, when people ask me, what do you do? Right. I still don't give up the doctor piece. You know, I say you You earned it. Yeah. But, and it's still something I deal with. You know, but I say I'm a non-clinical OBGYN. And then if they ask what, I go into the insurance stuff. Like I'm still not comfortable leading with the insurance broker part, which is kind of ridiculous. It's been nine years, but it's still a huge piece of my identity and I don't ever want to give it up. And and to your point, you know, years of counseling, right? Once we get the MD, no one can ever take that away from us. But it's still weird. You know, there are times where I don't quite feel like I fit in with the physician crowd. There are times where I don't totally feel like I fit in with the insurance crowd. I'm often the only woman at the table. Um, So it it, it's still an ongoing process, you know, and and I think it's going to be for a long time. We really I don't think that we do a great job as a profession helping the newer 
folks coming in realize that they have to have an identity outside of medicine. I mean, it was completely who I was. And I didn't realize that until I got hurt. I completely agree. I mean, we don't recognize how much it, it infiltrates into our whole sense of being until it's suddenly taken away. And, you know, your story is is very similar to others that I've heard um, about our identity and, you know, when it's taken away. And I do think that the younger generation is is much more aware of not letting this be um, all that they are and, and who they are. And starting with the 80 hour work week of recognizing that there is like daylight and life outside of you know the hospital um, is helpful. And I think that it's on us to, to say that just because we did that doesn't mean that we have to continue to do that, that we don't have to continue to um, have, you know, sacrificed our life for the profession, that we can actually still be, you know, who we are professions and, and have hobbies and things elsewhere. And I do appreciate you mentioning about, you know, the idea of suicide and, you know, pharmacology and therapy. And I think the more that we speak to this, that'll be helpful. And you you don't know this, but actually your podcast episode will be coming after um, Dr. Michelle Chestovich's one talking about her her sister, Gretchen Butler. And, and as you, I know, you know, the story, of course, um, the fact that this could like literally happen to any of us, any you know, of us. any of us. And, you know, it happened to people who you wouldn't guess. Uh, and so for us to be able to speak up and normalize the struggles that we have, which is our ability to do our job, our worry that we're doing our job well, and, you know, what happens when our identity is challenged, which is going to happen all throughout our career, I think this idea that our career is going to be exactly what we think it is, is, you know, just like saying you have a normal family. No one has a normal family. I always joke about that, right? Like when you talk about dysfunctional families, is there a functional family out there? Because I don't know of it yet. No, I think normal families are suspect. (laughs) Someone's lying, right? Exactly. There's so much information, um, you know, on your website and in your blogs about insurance, but take me through some of the basics. So I have some, you know, let's say you have um, someone who's in residency and, and then also be interested to see if it differs residency versus attending. So if someone comes to you and say, okay, Dr. Pearson, what do I do now? What would you tell them to do? So it does absolutely differ between training and outside of training. So I say training instead of residency because fellowship falls into the same category. So when you're in training, there are a couple of reasons to do it early. So one is just straight cost. You're the youngest you're ever going to be. The odds are you're the healthiest you're ever going to be. And more importantly, there are discounts associated with most training programs. And once you get that discount, it's locked in for the life of the policy. And we're talking anywhere between 10 and 40% savings over the life of a policy. So that's not nothing. Um, The other piece is when you're in training, all of the companies will actually give you a specific amount of coverage just based on the fact that you're a trainee. They don't look at what's your income. They don't look at do you have any group benefits? Once you exit training, now the game changes. What you qualify for is actually based on internal algorithms that look at how much money do you make, what benefits you receive, and who pays for them because that affects taxation. And I have found that especially in primary care specialties, folks outside of training often won't even qualify 
for as much as they would have qualified as a resident or a fellow. And you might think to yourself, well, if I don't qualify, do I really need it? Well, that goes back to the why we think group policies are inferior, right? So most of the time it's treated as taxable income. Most of the time there's a maximum benefit. The language is inferior. They're not usually portable, right? So there are so many reasons why you want your private pool to be higher. And so I always tell people the younger, the better, the healthier, the better. And on the side, women absolutely need to get this stuff in place before the first time they try to get pregnant. The companies look for any reason not to cover future pregnancies and things like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, having sections for certain reasons will end up making it unlikely that future pregnancy will be covered. And obviously as an OBGYN, first and foremost, that's super important to me. And pregnancy related disability accounts for about six to 8% of claims every year. That's pretty significant. I mean, that's nothing to laugh at. And so, you know, what I may say to a woman may be different than what I say to a man. And it's not sexist. It's really, truly based on actuarial data. Absolutely. And so when they look for a policy, um, should they look for an outside policy or should they just read the group? Should they get both? What would you advise people? Or does it depend? Ultimately, it depends. Um, I am a big proponent of both, right? For all the reasons that I mentioned previously, there's always going to be exceptions, right? There are going to people that are hard to insure, impossible to insure. You know, there are some people that I will say, so let me take a step back. I am nothing if not brutally honest and transparent. And so I don't mince my words. I treat everybody like, you know, the wink, wink, if you were my sister, brother, mother, father, right? There are people that I will say, look, because of the following reasons, this needs to be part of your negotiation. You need to be somewhere that has a group benefit. And if where you're going and you know applying for jobs, if they don't have this benefit, you need to look elsewhere unless this is the perfect job for you. Because even if group benefits are inferior, something's better than nothing, right? For instance, I spoke to a gentleman today He's a radiologist. He has lattice degeneration and he's already had a, a oh my God, one a detachment of one of his retinas. Any private policy that we look at now is going to have an eye exclusion. He's a radiologist, <laughs> right? So he has a group benefit that's voluntary. So company says we have it. If you want it, you have to buy it. Now if he were happy, healthy, and intact, I would say pass, put all of your eggs in a private basket. For him, he needs that group benefit because once he's been employed there for a year, and this is the, this policy specific, they cover everything. So even though it's there are some inferior pieces to it, if something happens to his eyes, I want him to have a chance of getting some money. I know that the private policy isn't going to cover his eyes, right? So he's somebody where I'm going to say, you want to buy this group benefit. 
in somebody who maybe has a different history, I'm going to recommend something different. So it is really not a one size fits all answer. And what do you recommend someone who now has a job and they're offered insurance? Do you think that they should check that box then get with you or should they get with you beforehand? I'm going to say it depends again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, ultimately, you know, if they miss the boat in training and now they're in attending, um, one caveat too, if you're within your first year to two as an attending, sometimes there is a gray zone where they'll give something called starting practice limits, um, which they don't look at in income or benefits. Once you're outside of that, yes, then we go into true numbers. Look, I'm always going to recommend that somebody have somebody else look at those documents, if for no other reason, to know what you have and what you don't have, right? As I mentioned, the overall the overwhelming majority of group benefits are employer paid and you don't have a choice. And so you can't opt out. And so the benefit is just knowing, okay, where are the holes? And again, I think everyone should have a private policy. I mean, you want something that's going to be able to grow with you. You want to be able to take it with you if you leave that job. We know, again, actuarially speaking, that most people change their jobs three to five times during their employment life. Um, And so, you know, knowing that fact makes sense to get a policy as young as you are, as healthy as you are, you know, every now and again, somebody gets healthier over time, but for the most part, we don't, you know, and so um, I think it's a wise idea to have another set of eyes who knows what they're looking at to be able to educate you and help you make an educated decision moving forward. Excellent. And so how do people find you? Like, take us through what it's like for, you know, going to your website, coming up. What does that process look like? Obviously, the website is the easiest. However, people can't get to me directly through the website because now I have taken on more of a traditional CEO and medical director role. I review every single intake that comes through. I have trained all of our producers. I set them up for their calls, you know, with the questions to ask and what to expect. So you can get to all five of the other brokers that way. Um, To get to me directly actually has to come through a warm lead, you know, so kind of a, either it's a client that I already have who's making an introduction or a VIP who's making an introduction. There's only so much time in a day. And I hate even saying this. It took a lot for me to come off the the website call schedule. Um, but I, you know, there's only so much time. Good in a day. to be the boss. You um, own me, girl. <laughs> and so, um, you know, our phone number is on the website everybody's emails are on the website. Um, And so I actually think I'm more accessible now than I was practicing medicine, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people reach out to me straight on Facebook um, and I respond. Um, We're working on, you know, I do have a LinkedIn account. People have reached out and found me through LinkedIn. It's under my name. Um, 
And Facebook is under my name. I wasn't savvy enough way back when to come up with a pseudonym. So I am in fact, Stephanie Pearson (laughs) on Facebook. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, there are a million ways to find me now. So they Um, they go in there and they fill out some information and then you talk back and forth. They find the rules and they give you. So, so if you go through the website, we do have an intake form. Uh It's kind of like going to your PCP. Um, we ask a lot of information up front and it's not to be nosy. It's to be fully educated. We try to do a lot of field underwriting. Um, again, going back to the, I didn't feel like I was educated or advocated for. And so I like people to have a real realistic expectation set. And sometimes we can steer people in different directions based on their needs, going back to the, it's not a one size fits all. And so we do have an intake form. We ask for a decent amount of information. Then you have an initial consultation with one of our brokers. Typically we do kind of the DI 101 talk. So there's an educational component. Then we individualize it. So based on the information that you've provided, we create realistic illustrations. So it's not a broiler plate. Here's, you know, an average 35 year old doc, right? It is truly tailored to you. There are six traditional companies right now that offer physicians specialty specific coverage. We run everybody through them all. We tend to go over the three that are pricing the best or make the most sense for that client based on underwriting feedback. So one of the things that I do when I review these intakes, if there's a medical issue that I'm not familiar with, or I am, and I know that there's going to be limitations, I will often John Doe people. So one of the things that I'm really proud of is I think because I'm a physician, I think I've been able to actually make relationships at all six of the carriers and I have direct access to underwriters. And so I can pre-screen someone before you even get on a call with somebody. And I'll say, you know, hey, I have an upcoming woman or man. Here's the demographics. What are we really looking at? And so that we're going into that call with armed with that information, right? So I can say to somebody, look, We've gone to all the six, all six of the companies. These are the three that are giving us the best response. Maybe they're the least expensive, maybe they're not, but ultimately we want to get the best coverage. So it's not frequent that I say to somebody, you might look into paying a little bit more. Usually one of the top three still ends up really good, but there are times, right, where I have to say to somebody, look, this may be a little bit more expensive, but they're willing to give you better coverage. So let's do it, you know? And so I have the ability to do that. And that's why I review all the intakes that come in. And then you have that call, You we go over the illustrations and then you have direct contact, right? So if you have any questions, you can email your broker. Once you make a decision, we actually assign you what's called a client coordinator, So we have a group of folks that kind of take all of our clients and help you through the application process. Because a lot of that is really just a lot of back and forth information gathering. And then, you know, we populate 
the application. We send it to you for your approval and signature, and then we submit it. Um, and then underwriting can take anywhere from two days to months and months and months. It all depends on what the carriers find in your history. What are they asking for? I will tell you getting medical records is the bane of my existence. <laughs> you know, I thought EMR would make that easier. I'm finding EMR to be a hassle and that's me putting it lightly. A lot of places now go through a third party for medical records. It can take up to 90 days. Um, oftentimes I will say to physicians, get your records yourself because I'm a physician. They'll take medical records from us. So a lot of times I'll tell people, go ahead and get them and then we'll send them. Um, also I find with EMR, by the way, this is a huge PSA. Look at your medical records the next time you're at the doctor. Um, EMR, a lot of times there, I call it the EMR sweep, right? You say that something's wrong somebody clicks a box, but every time you go back, they say, has anything changed? And you say no, because you don't remember what happened at your last visit. And it just keeps going with you. Or a box is checked off erroneously. I will tell you my own personal story. I was at the doc not too long ago, and I took my own advice, looked over the MA shoulder, and it was clicked in my surgical history that I had a hysterectomy. I still have my uterus. Mm. I've had three hysteroscopies. I make polyps, but I still have my uterus. If that had gone to an underwriter, they would have then pushed back and said, why'd you have a hysterectomy? And I'd have to say, I don't have a hysterectomy. Well, how do you prove that? Right. Now and, you have to prove you have a uterus. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you do that? You know? Um, but I see this a lot. Um, I see you know, social histories that just keep getting pushed forward. I had a horrible file. A young lady was honest in college and said that she smoked pot every day. She's still seeing the same doctor. She's now 32. Mm. And guess what? Every single visit says she smokes every day. Oh my. She hasn't smoked since she got into med school. It's really hard to prove that. Right. Because we know that if if you know you're getting tested, you can stop for a month, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. I can't do anything for her. We have to wait a year. Wow. You know, and she has to get her medical records amended. And so I tell people all the time, please look at your medical records, make sure that stuff is accurate. You know, you don't want your cardiologist checking off that you have major depression if it's not major depression, but it might be the first box that they see right? There are ramifications on diagnoses. And so it's really important. And I realized I just went, I got on a soapbox about that, but well, it's really helpful information really because important. I mean, I think that so many of us don't even pay attention to that. And, and the implications of that, as you mentioned, are just, you know, really, we could fix it in an instant, but unraveling it after the fact is going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. And we had another one, a set of twins, there was a medication hit. And so during the underwriting process, they're going to look at your pharmacy records for the last five to seven years. So I get a nasty gram back from an underwriter, you know, please explain the following medications. It was his brother. He has a twin oh brother. So mm -hmm. it came up under the last name. 
their first names are really close. And we had to unravel that. I also had a file where a woman had seen an REI doc and the practice of that practice was they would call in the medications beforehand to see how much they would cost without realizing that they were doing these women a huge disservice because it came up on a medication hit. The insurance companies don't care if you picked up the medication or not. They just see that it's been ordered. Really? And the, and the practice had no idea. Like I had to actually get the practice manager on the phone and be like this, you are doing all of the women a disservice. You cannot call these meds in. It's affecting their insurance. Wow. You know, and so these are things that we're not taught. Right. And we're, you know, we're, it, it's just, and from a physician standpoint too, we're so overworked, right? You're seeing a bazillion patients. We don't have the time. We don't have the luxury. And I get that, you know, like someone will say like, well, why didn't my physician fix this? And I'm like, you're a physician. Come on. Do you have time to go through everybody's review of systems and go over their past medical history and their past surgical history? No, we rely on our MAs or our nurse practitioners or our PAs, whatever, because we don't have the time. And so I tell people, you have to advocate for yourself. You have to look at this stuff, look over their shoulders, you know, make sure that things are accurate and up to date because with EMR now, it literally just keeps going until somebody unclicks it. Exactly. Well, I mean, such valuable information. I, I'm. Thank you so much for coming on because so much of this is going to save someone a lot of money and time and heartache down the road. I hope and, so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of these things I'd heard and some of these I hadn't. So, I mean, I've learned some a lot too. Now, so where is the best place for someone to find you? Is it your website? It's our website. Yeah. Yes. So pearsonravits.com. My name is spelled P as in Paul, E-A-R-S as in Sam, O-N as in Nancy, Ravitz, R as in Roger, A as in Apple, V as in Victor, I, T as in Tom, Z as in zebra.com. And to find me personally, you're actually best off either doing it on LinkedIn or Facebook. Perfect. Well, any last words of advice for anyone about insurance or uh, anything in general? Oh, geez. Uh, Number one, I would say get it as early as you can. Residency fellowship is ideal. Number two, should something happen to you, um, remember that there's a lot of stuff that we can do outside of medicine. I really thought that I was overeducated and underemployable. And the fact of the matter is there really is a lot out there. So don't take an injury or an illness as a death sentence. Um, And, you know, something that Dr. Vetries and I were talking about, you know, give yourself some grace, right? We all do the best we can with what we have when we have it. Um, And I think that applies to everything, you know, medicine, not medicine, parenting, you know, you name it. Um, And yeah, just keep doing what you love. I love it. I love it. And 
So I'll make sure that your contact information is on the show notes. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Pearson, for coming by. This was so helpful. Oh my gosh. Thanks for having me. And I should have said it earlier, but you can always call me Stephanie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course. And I adore you and you keep doing what you're doing. I think you're a rock star. (laughs) Well, you know, the feeling is mutual. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everybody. We're kind of fangirling right now. I I know, right? We're going to hang up and we're going to talk another hour. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right, until next time. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.